video rental shops when he's trying to act like a hero and no one's there just to say hello even though he feels so small he knows that someone cares his first day is Welcome, listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode Nightmare Retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and I was born on the dark side. And I'm Martin O'Donnell, and I was born butter side up. Today we're looking at Series 3, Episode 8. This episode was originally broadcast on CITV on October the 27th, 1989. The new number one at the UK box office is Shirley Valentine, directed by Lewis Gilbert and starring Pauline Collins, Tom Conti, who seems to be everywhere in films at the moment, and Julia McKenzie. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomatoometer score of 73% and an audience score of 86%, suggesting it's really quite good. So, of course, I've never seen it. Is this it? Have you finally gone round a friggin' pipe? We always have steak on Thursday. I'm not eating shite. Muddy, haven't got enough sugar in this cocoa. You go down and get us another spoon. She's only been back five minutes and she's got me strutting round like R2 bleeding D2. Hiya, Wall. What's wrong with that? There's a woman three doors down. Talk to a microwave. Talking to a microwave. Whoa, what's the world coming to? I think sex is like supermarkets. Just a lot of pushing and shoving and you still come out with very little at the end. 
only thing I ever wanted to do was travel. I'd like to drink a glass of wine, sitting by the sea, watching the sun go down. Not a feminist, not like Jane. All men are potential rapists. Even the Pope. Shirley Valentine got married to a boy called Joe. But somewhere along the way, the boy called Joe turned into him. I always have my tea at six o'clock. World exclusive. Joe eats late. We were at school together. Marjorie's an air hostess now. I'm not an air hostess. I'm a hooker. That's right, Melandra. I'm going to Greece for the sex. Sex for breakfast, sex for dinner, sex for tea, and sex for supper. Sounds like a marvellous diet, love. It's called the F plan. I hardly recognise myself these days. I love it here. Don't I rock? I've got this little dream about sitting at a table by the edge of the sea. Ah, I move table to edge of sea. I make your dream come true. The only holiday romance I've had is with myself. And I think I've come to like myself, really. I've fallen in love with the idea of living. Here you, who are you talking to? Oh, Costas. Just the wall. Good. I'm Shirley the Brave. Shirley the Marvelous. Shirley Valentine. It's actually pretty good fun, um, Shirley Valentine. There's something very, very play it safe about it, but it's still quite a good film. Um, Colin's character is basically just a bored middle-aged housewife, and she decides to sneak off on holiday to Greece on her own to liven things up a bit, and she ends up having a love affair and and what have you um, with a local Greek philanderer. It's sort of like a cross between... I don't know if if you've ever seen a, a series called Fresh Fields, from the 1980s it's sort of a cross between fresh fields and house of cards because she spends the entire movie breaking the fourth wall like frank underwood only she's um saying nice things to the camera rather than cold-blooded things i wouldn't bother getting the dvd of it or anything but it, it certainly isn't a bad film if you were flicking through channels on the television and you came across it there was nothing else on that you would watch it yeah i think that's right fairly sure onto the music charts now mr adoni will be happy to know that jive bunny and the master mixes are holding on to the number one spot with that's what i like come on everybody go sidestep off a dungeon ledge <laughs> <laughs> For now, time turns to recording like burns. Time out is gone and the podcast is on. Welcome, watchers. Perhaps you'll close the door after you. Not that it's a door in the usual way, but there is the draft, and the dungeon is cold enough without making matters worse. You're here for adventure, of course. <laughs> Who isn't? But before you discover what lies ahead, it's best to recall the past. Beyond the door, beneath the floor, the path of peril lies. And little hope there is for those who haven't learned to fly. But wait, who comes to brave my keep and walk these dungeon shades? It's Ross and Chums from Birmingham. Let's see how they behave. So far, so good. At least they're tough and sometimes big as well. And things for them aren't easy since a kindly maiden fell. Their quest is now to free her, and level two's their aim. So time out now is over. Let's join them in the game. 
We've got a little extra bonus rhyme here with door and floor to begin with. And then it goes rapidly down here from there. It loses heart with extreme suddenness, I think. Suddenly you've got lies and fly, shades and behave. Well and fell is uh, okay, but too easy. And aim and game, again, okay, it rhymes, but again, it's too easy. Well and fell, it's not the first time they've used that, is it? No, I'm pretty sure it isn't. So all, all a bit meh, that one, I'm afraid. So fail. Out of ten? Four. I think I still will miss the dungeon ditties when they do go. The idea of it is better than the execution, but at the same time, you don't want to let go of the idea. You can actually sort of see past the bad rhymes just because you've got the title music playing in the background, which I think is the real thing, which is uh, very appealing about it. Where am I? Ross, you're on a rotating disc and there are five doors around you and there is a face of, um, I think Mel- it's Melisandra. Melisandra above one of the doors. I think we'd better go a through caution, that caution, team. This apparatus is called the Spin Dizzy. Its purpose is to make your entrance into level two a random experience. But what's worse is a fall here could be fatal. Guide Ross to the edge and then... Time is leaped to safety. When we left them, Ross and his advisors, Gavin, Fu and Shahzad, had literally just landed in level two on the spin dizzy. Yeah, Blumenach. I mean, I knew this team were indecisive, but they still haven't made up their mind which door they want after a week. All the doors are black. All that is except for the second door from the right, which has a picture of Melisandre above it. Clearly, this is the right way to go. And the team carefully guide Ross to the edge of the disc and time his jump well. Yeah, that is actually a very well-judged step, in fact. I'm going to give them some kudos for that. That's, um, I took, that, that, that took some, uh, a, bit, a, a bit of maths in the head and, uh, and they got it spot on. They give him a countdown so he's proper ready as well. I think that may be the first time. We already had a very long, slow level one there. And getting into level two, that's the first time we've actually think they've done something really well. Uh, keep it up, boys, please. <laughs> one, two, three, jump now. Where am I? Ross, you are in a room. Um, there is a s- stool, well, a, a stand pitch. in the middle of the room, and there's a jackdaw. Who's a stupid boy, then? Who's a stupid boy, then? And also, Ross, there's a door to your um, right. So anyway, they arrive at the Raven's Courtyard. Interestingly, they describe it as a jackdaw. It tells them that the third step is the crown. Throughout Nightmare history, there were quite a lot of crowns were successfully won. So I suppose that's a good omen for them. Although at this point, of course, nobody had ever won the crown. The Raven then does something that I think is entirely accurate and true by calling Ross a stupid boy repeatedly. I get the feeling that it's a dad's army fan. This, this Raven. <laughs> yeah. Same don't do a great deal to disprove his claims. They tell Ross to offer the Raven, as in a creature with wings, a handshake. <laughs> and uh, it's also a recording, of course, so nothing happens and it doesn't respond at all. So Ross says hello, um, and uh, Hugo is clearly hissing his pants, yeah. laughing, as Ross makes a complete fool of himself by trying to talk to him. It's brilliant, a isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it is, yeah. Step clues are important, and that's something the Raven does occasionally provide. But a lot of the time, he doesn't I feel like a waste of time. Tregard eventually, reluctantly, urges them to move on. Um, turn to your right. Right. Forward. Walk forward. Where am I? Right, 
Thomas, you're in a room and there's spears in front of you. Um, we'll, we'll tell you um, where to go. Oh, uh -huh. this is... There's a school coming, so hurry up. Um, um, they tell him to hurry up before they've actually told him to do anything. <laughs> Slight problem of getting your tasks in order there, boys. They've gone for a short red door tunnel before they arrive in the corridor uh, <laughs> of spears. You should just mention that. Um, and this is a corridor <laughs> of spears that's um, got skull hauntings. Not just one, but two today. I'm going to be fair here. I actually say once they've sorted out what order to give their instructions in, the team handle this one by themselves very smoothly. They don't get any particular prompting from Draeguard other than the basic early sum-up. Um, and once Ross has passed the first set of spears and then the second haunting appears, they take it in their stride, slip through the door quite quickly and quite smoothly. Maybe they're just starting to get into their stride now they've got the first level under their belt. You seem to think less of this team than I do. I don't think they're particularly bad. I think they're slow, but I don't think they're particularly bad mm, mm, mm. Yeah, hurry up ross hurry up and do what you haven't told me yet i think the evidence is leaning in my direction one thing yeah there's a few other things as well like what do i do with this egg in a stomach that sort of thing and uh, needing trade guard basically to tell them the answer to the entire puzzle they hadn't hit their stride yet and now they have okay so you need to be in your stride to know that you should throw an egg right okay when we say get, get ready Go. Carry on. Where am I? Ross, you are in a room. Um, there's a great big hole um, in front of you. There's a, and there's a door on the opposite side and there's a chair and a carpet. There's also um, an extension on the opposite side with some um, marking on. Caution team. This is a magic place, but steps must be taken if the magic is to be released. On to Merlin's throne room next, which is actually arrived a bit early. Um, maybe they're trying to shorten level two a bit because level one took such a horribly long time. The team quickly work out uh, Trey God's clue here to invoke the first step. Ross holds his hands out uh, and offers a handshake to the empty air. And it works. A stone appears and he takes a couple of steps forward, almost walking off the edge. Minimum prompting required, though. Ross is now told to wave his hand and another stone appears. Excellent, excellent. This team are really starting to look the part now. The final step takes a little more working out. Okay, okay. And they tell Ross to say, good boy. All right, your major point. Stop gloating. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they, they then tried saying crown. Nothing happens, obviously, and Traegard has to give them a big clue. Try an action, any action. Crown. Um, crown? What would you do with a crown? Put your well, um, right, hands to your put head. Put your hands to your head. Pretend to put on a crown or something. Um, yes. Ah, walk forward. Walk forward. We're basically back to getting Traegard to do all the thinking for them again. This team are like a snakes and ladders game. Yeah, um, and they've just trod on the longest snake on the board, and all that progress has just been undone. <laughs> I don't think Traegard should have given them a clue here, personally. No, it's it should be it should be unbelievably obvious what to do. Mm. Just make it look like you're putting something on your head. You don't even have to make it look like it's a crown. You can make it look like a hat being put on your head. But oh dear, never mind. A stop. Yeah. A guy has appeared on the throne. Merlin. Merlin. Did you have to? That was quite the nicest dream I've had in a couple of hundred years. The trouble is that by tomorrow I shall probably have forgotten it. Still, that's tomorrow. 
and today is today and uh, you must be Ross, is that right? Yes. Good, then I'm not wasting my time talking to the wrong person. It's quite fitting that um, when Merlin appears, he's sleeping at this point. Yeah, may just be a very, very subtle hint. Hurry up a bit, lads, come on. After restoring Ross's life force with the Vim spell, Merlin poses his questions. If we surmise the world is round and gravity is a force for ground, then tell me now what must come down. Easy. The answer is that everything that goes up should accept it. But another of my bugbears um, on a lot of teams, not just this lot, all the advisors speak over each other to tell the Dungeoneer exactly the same thing. Discipline yourselves as well. Discipline yourselves a bit. On a far-flung island of this world, some sailors found a stupid bird who couldn't run and couldn't fly, and thus was sadly doomed to die. It isn't with us anymore, so give a name to nature's flaw. I have issues with this. I do as well. Uh, Dodo, which coincidentally is also the name of a former Doctor Who companion, believe it or not. The actress who played Dodo actually died um, a few months ago. Rather sad. So I don't think it's really nature's flaw that the Dodo, the bird, couldn't fly. I can understand the point they're making. There's, um, um, in more recent times, there's been another bird that um, has many of the similar features and has also mm, become the... endangered called the Kakapo in New Zealand. Yes, I've read Last Chance to See. You have. Well done. It's a very good book, that, by the way. I'm not sure. I'm, I've not in any way been paid or um, approached to plug it. It's an excellent book. I'm just a fan. It's such a shame, though, that at least one of the species covered in that book has now been declared extinct. Which one was that? The Yancey River Dolphin. Yeah, I remember now, yeah. I don't know where to start with that, because well, I'm being serious here. This is, they were, yeah. You are making a serious point, and it is a very yeah. good one. It's not so much nature's flaw um, with the dodo, or with the kakapo, or with the Yangtze River Dolphin. It's actually artificial flaws created by humans. If it was nature's flaw, we wouldn't have penguins. It's quite misleading to imply the extension of the dodo was uh, a unique event in avian history at all. But uh, what was different about the dodo was it wouldn't have died if it hadn't been for human interference. And that's also the case of an awful lot of extinctions over the last couple of hundred years in particular. Not only did we hunt them, but we also bought domesticated animals such as dogs and cats and introduced a new predator. Natural predators are birds, so it wasn't that nature got it wrong, it was us who got it wrong. Hmm. Um, and as I say, the same thing happened in New Zealand with the kakapo. Although there's an effort to keep them from actually going extinct, uh, as far as I know, they're still on the endangered list. It is, this is a serious issue. The IUCN, the International Union of Conservation of Nature, currently classes the kakapo as critically endangered. Critically endangered, right. So it's like, in fact, things have got worse. It's one of the great problems, of, and that you can say there is a kind of flaw in nature with the kakapo, which is mm. it's so bloody difficult to get them to mate and breed at all. Many who study that actually argue that... Um, the kakapo's mating cry actively repels the female. Kakapo's are obviously more like humans than we thought. When the kakapo's um, making this strange noise to attract the female, um, it's, it's basically just saying, hey, you love owls about it, and therefore obviously yeah. puts the female off. It's not all humans' fault, let's, let's put it that way. Okay, so there actually has been some improvement. Um, in 2002, they had quite a good breeding year, and the population was around 86 until 2004 Mm. um there's now estimated to uh be around 208 so that has gone up that that, that is that is an improvement since 1990 then okay that is that is pretty good it was below it was well below 50 um if i remember rightly from what 
Adams and Cardin wrote. So uh, that is actually an improvement. But still, it's survival is, is unlikely without intervention. Yes, uh, I think that will do. Now, listen, Ross, you and your friends have done quite well. As a reward, I gift you a spell. That spell is called Twist, just like in the card game. But, of course, it is no game. So um, Merlin rewards the team with the spell. Okay, go on, play the soundbite. After warning them that the spell is no game, Merlin promptly falls asleep again before disappearing and the team guide Ross out. There is something very odd about the end of this scene if you're watching. Ross is told to take another step left but walk straight forward through the door and then just as he's um, about to appear in Merlin's room, the team then tell him to walk forward as though he's still in Merlin's room. Some of it seems to be cut out there and been replaced with something without its own soundtrack. Where am I? Ross, you're in a corridor. Um, uh, there, there are some doors um, on your right and left. There Warning, team. Goblins in the level. Oh, yes. It's the great card of the catacombs. Oh, what's an adventure? Ross finds himself under attack from a video recording. This particular video takes the shape of two goblins skulking about midway down the corridor. The team pretty much ignore them and Ross exits to the right. Ross, sidestep, turn to your left, to your right, to your right. Move forward. Quickly. Where am I? Ross, you are in a room. Um, it looks as if it's upside down because the, the floor is exactly the same as the ceiling. And Hurry, uh, Ross! Hurry! It, it looks like um, windows, but if it was upside down, it could be doors. We arrive in the twist room, and this is actually why it's called the twist room, is this particular scene. So the twist room is a five-door chamber, or is it five windows? It's difficult to tell. The floor has the same paving stone layout as the ceiling, and there appears to be no exit at first glance. The room has become known tonight as the twist room because of what happens next. So shall we cast a spell? Yeah, twist. Do you think we should twist? Yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah, Russ. Yeah, go on. Okay. Spell casting T. W I S T
they cast a spell without any prompting, which is very good. No sooner has the spell been cast than the firewall flips over. The three windows on that wall have now become doors, and the team move towards the door on the right. I misremember this, because I, I remember the entire room flipping over. I seem to remember it happening the way it does happen, because I actually remember at the time when it was first shown, I was saying, ah, but it's only twisted the one wall round. It hasn't bothered with the two side walls. Hmm. Because those have still got two windows on them. Because I just assumed that was why the floor and the ceiling were the same. That might have been the original idea. I just think that they did that with this room just to make it a bit more interesting. Because it's, it's as we've discussed on a previous episode, this is probably the dullest, most unimaginative new bit of architecture in all of season three. Walk forward quickly. Stop! Ah! Gotcha! You murdering Campbell dog! Why do we know? You don't look like a Campbell, but they're devilish cunning of these Campbells. So I better finish you to be sure. So McGrew draws his sword and Treyguard urges the team to wake up. If only he'd done that back in the very first chamber of the dungeon. Advisor should say, latch his sword in his seat as if he genuinely had been falling asleep. May have been copying Merlin. Yeah, it's not just me, is it? He does actually look like he was falling asleep. He does. Ross tells McGrew that he's not a Campbell just in time, and McGrew believes him just like that. I'll make it up to thee. I'll hire along with thee for the company, huh? And as an apology, he offers to become Ross's guide and takes him through the centre door, following closely behind. And that takes them to a certain familiar bridged area of level two. On we go. Straight forward. Oh. Ah, interesting. I do believe it's one of Merlin's nasty little proteges. But what's it doing wandering around level two in the company of a hairy barbarian? Extreme caution, team. I don't know who this is, but I have a horrible suspicion and that... who it... are you calling a hairy barbarian, you four-fade wee monk? Traegard says, I don't know who this is. It's clearly Mogdred. Okay, <laughs> well, shall we hear me Traegard just for a bit and just play along as though it's a yeah. really gigantic mystery. I mean, you know, Mogdred dressing up in a monk's outfit. He's never done that no. before. So obviously there's no clue in the fact that he's wearing a monk's habit again. Mm. Um, and that he hasn't done anything to disguise his voice whatsoever in stark contrast to what Lord Fear would do in later years. No, 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 no. It's a complete mystery who this guy is. It's not possible that it's Mogdred. Well, to be fair, Traegard does sort of hint that he believes it might be Mogdred. He starts to say something, but gets interrupted. Interesting that they enter the veil from the uh, entrance on the right, because that doesn't happen that often. And maybe we're, we're actually they're, they're entering from the same position, and we're just looking at it from the opposite angle. They find their way blocked by this hooded monk with a deep, pompous, booming voice that isn't familiar in the slightest and doesn't sound exactly like anybody else in the dungeon whatsoever. McGrew takes offence to being called a hairy barbarian. Given the way he's dressed, this is actually in itself is, is, is something to take issue with given the way he's dressed mcgrew appears to be from some time after the 16th century yeah and so his reference to the campbells may imply a connection to the glencore massacre of 1692 which was carried out at the command of the laird of glenlion called robert campbell 
Yeah. The victims of that particular crime were the clan MacDonald, not the clan McGrew. But either way, it would be off related to Scottish history to call him a barbarian. And so, you know, you just you just suck air through your teeth when you hear Mogdred using the term little baby. Don't forget that a large proportion of the viewership at this time would have been from Scotland. <laughs> so you're telling them that they're people of barbarians, you know, it was that late in the, as late as the late 17th century I mean, and then of course McGrew responds with something even worse yeah let's look into this without actually using the word it begins with S though yes we had a bit of a discussion whether this was actually a slur or not and um it is it, it is. is yeah it's not it's not a particularly serious one it's not it's, a, it's one that gets used in school all the time so anybody anybody who's heard it will be completely um desensitized to it but it is a slur. Yes. Um, and it means um, a male whose behaviour is copied from his sister and is therefore considered effeminate, so to speak, yes. too feminine. Not, not traditionally uh, masculine. Yeah. Now, whether you feel it's important that a male behaves in a traditionally masculine male, that's entirely a matter for yourself. It doesn't mean you have to impose it on others. Um, but either way, it is de- very definitely meant as a as a pejorative mm. in saying that me- men sh- should not behave in any way other than a, a really macho, bullying, tough guy way. Yeah, it shouldn't have been used. But this isn't to cast shade on the actor David Very, or the writers, or Tim Child, or anybody else involved in the production of Nightmare. It's just another example of how far we've actually come and how much attitudes have evolved in what is a relatively short space of time. It's coming up to 33 years, you know, um, which is basically just a bit more than a generation. And a lot has, a lot has changed in that time in terms of the treatment of minorities. But still, you also stop and think about it. This was 13 years after um, there was supposedly the emancipation of, of the gay community. And they're still using terms like this S word as though behaviours that are taken to resemble gay behaviour is automatically wrong in males. So not Mogdred obviously doesn't like being insulted in this way. How unbelievably impertinent your presence is an offence. Spellcasting T-O-A-D. <laughs> How satisfying. We shall meet again, I have no doubt. <laughs> Having turned McGrew into a giant toad, not Mogdred lets out a villainous laugh that doesn't in any way sound like anyone else's villainous laugh, then vanishes with a sound effect that doesn't in any possible way sound like the sound effect used when a certain someone else vanishes. The team, surmising that they'll need McGrew's help, in order to progress, dispel the magic and change McGrew back into his human form. Fair play to them. They do this without prompting. Shall we, we try? Yeah, it might be help. Come on, let's go. Okay. Dispel. D O A T. Oh, thank heavens for that! I thought I was doomed! Usually, dispel on other people's magic um, was. Uh... I'm fairly sure they wouldn't have seen this spell actually being used on somebody else's spell before because um, that never happened in the first two seasons. McGrew shows his appreciation with another slur. Young wherever you go on this level, Black McGrew's your man. Right, you lead on, I'll follow. Straight on. Here we go. 
Having just moved to Scotland a few months before this and got a really heavy dose of the Anglophobia that is rampant in parts of Glasgow, I uh, did flinch quite a bit whenever McGrew used the term <laughs> back in 1989. It's, it's water off a duck's back to me these days. McGrew may not be the most open-minded of fellows, but he's always keen to repay his debts. He leads Ross through the exit. Ross, we're in a great big cavern. You stay here. I'll go look for a way out. Ross and Bats are attacking. Get out! Stay there. This is their safe place to be. These bats are poisonous. McGrew goes wandering through the cave trying to search for an exit and seems ludicrously afraid of the uh, very cartoon animated bats that uh, occasionally emerge overhead. And he really struggles to find a way out. To be honest, it makes McGrew look as well as blind as a bat. If you were there in real life and you saw a bat that looked like that flying towards you, you would be terrified. Because you'd be like, what the heck is wrong with that bat? I'd be very, very mystified by it. I don't know if I'd be terrified of it. Anyway, um, McGrew eventually finds the exit um, in the same place it always is. Which uh, leads me to wonder why he didn't know where it was. Because he'd definitely been... Uh, through that part of level two earlier in the season when the dance spell was used up in my cliff but never mind uh and he guides ross through into the next segment of the caves straight on and right with you my boy where are we now um you are in a cavern that there's food there's food on a table and there's a letter f on the wall life was fading i would rather like to know the origin of this place why is there an ulcer in this cavern what who used to use this as some kind of place of worship. It might be quite interesting. There's never any exploration of it at all in that sense. There's food on the altar, and the letter F is hovering above it in midair. Now, this is really mean of the team, this bit, isn't it? Because they go to get the food, and they don't even ask McGrew if he'd like some first. Yeah, he just sticks it in his knapsack. What a greedy glutton. When he does knapsack it, a sword appears and starts attacking McGrew. Not Ross. <laughs> he attacks McGrew. He ignores Ross. Yeah. It ignores Ross. Put it in your knapsack. A sword's attacking. The use of sound effects in this scene really kind of sell it, despite the fact that it's still obviously Tim Child's mouse pointer. Yeah, yeah. But the potential for some kind of real action um, is increasing as the tech improves. They wouldn't have been able even to do this in season one. No. Um, but they're now able to actually, even if it's an animated sword, you can actually create the illusion of an animated sword, a, a, an armed ghost, as it were, fighting a real warrior. Uh, and David Very actually does a really good job to make the sword play look quite real. He does. And what also helps is that rather than the vertical sword that we usually get, it's a diagonal sword. They twisted it onto its diagonal, so um, they've probably had to create a brand new cursor for it. But again, it's not very difficult to do that. And it works. So Russ climbs onto the altar to reach the letter F, and with everything that's going on, he has trouble hearing his advisors telling him to reach above his head. But he eventually manages to get it, and it disappears as usual. And as he climbs down from the altar, he climbs down on the opposite side, which I don't think he was supposed to do. It really gets commented on, but it's um, it, I think he's the only one who ever does that. Whether the altar was supposed to be fixed against the wall, um, or, or that was the illusion that was supposed to be, um, he's, he's, he's definitely violated it. I don't know whether it actually is meant to be that, but that is definitely the illusion that's there. Hello, listeners. If you have a look at the third section of Death Valley, so the third scene within the caves where the Dungeoneer is walking towards the camera, 
you can see the altar in the background and it is very definitely fixed into the wall so the illusion is kind of a bit ruined here unfortunately but there you go Whilst all this is going on, the ghostly Claymore retreats, but it's waiting for them in the next cavern, which they uh, they soon join it, and again it's fought off by McGrew. Whilst all this is going on, suddenly the goblins have appeared. It's it's actually really lucky for Ross um, that uh, McGrew's here now because um, he's having to face rather a lot of threats at once. It's not usually that busy there. McGrew, who for a bold Scots marauder is surprisingly easy to frighten, quickly grabs Ross's arm and takes him through to the next chamber, talking in a very high pitched voice. <laughs> Goblins! Four goblins! On to the teeth, Ross! This is not a safe place to be! Come with me! Ah! That way! Quickly! Quickly! Where are we now? Ross, you're in a cave. It looks as if there's an entrance to a mine. And, um, some dots keep coming down the entrance. Problems, team. This appears to be a dead end. For a force field guards the mining tunnel and no one may pass through it on foot. Your only hope is to travel by rail. But how can you start? And guess what? We've reached the mine chamber. Yay! Which is, of course, end of level. Now, I've got to point this out. We've had the entirety of level two in comfortably less than one episode. I'm admitting it's not a particularly long level two, but even so, the pace has clearly stepped up a lot from last week. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually enjoying this episode far more than the previous one. Just to mention a small thing here, Traegard mentions travelling by rail, and I keep thinking this would have been a fantastic location to bring back in Season 7 or 8, just so they could satirise the privatisation of the railways. Real missed opportunity. I'll have to find that old British rail advert, you know, kick off your shoes, <laughs> get down in the blues. Just kick off your shoes. Get a lace. Like, what was, that? was that a British rail advert, or was it, or was it um, from the, whoever it came afterwards? British rail. I think it was, yeah. So. Anyway, let's refer to the team again. It didn't take them too long to work out what's required here. Um, it's just they can't quite find the words to convey it to McGrew. Uh, so they tell Ross to get into the... And then they ask McGrew, can you push me? That's what they turn to do. But instead, he asks McGrew, can he push him before he gets into the car? I've got this image of McGrew just looking yeah. at him and then just pushing <laughs> him over to the ground. <laughs> push him into the force field and burn him alive. McGrew, could you push me, please? Push it? Get in push it through, through the Through the uh, force field, Oh no, it's too hot. What? Just push you. Get in, in there. I do think McGrew is being a bit pedantic, though, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, the scene does make McGrew look a little bit stupid. He surely would have crossed his mind they meant um, something to do with the cart, but they, they managed to get the idea across him eventually. And so McGrew, and, and we actually see the cart moving this time when McGrew gives it a shove rather yeah. than. Uh, Motley just when Motley did it, just pretending to move it and sliding his foot backwards and forwards on the same spot, and it gives the impression of it being quite a heavy thing. Oh, you want to get in there? Oh, well, well there's some boxes here. In you get. I think you better sit. Okay. Hold on tight. Could be a very bumpy ride. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Then away we go. Ah. 
Loose not your tie, Hold on tight and keep your head down, Rost. The rest of you better warn him what's going on. Ross, you are um, going down a passageway on the trolley. There's lights flashing as you move down. Hold on, Ross. This is the only way down to level three. No episode can be bad if it's got the minecart ride in no. it. Even if it's just redeeming for loads of things that are wrong elsewhere in the episode. Yeah. It, it, it's great to watch the minecart ride. It's, it's uh... exciting. It's still visually <laughs> impressive. And of course, the advisors make it sound about as interesting as watching paint dry. They sound completely nonplussed by it. Um, they actually take all the energy out of the scene by just muttering slight observations. Yeah, I don't know, I love it. Just like when they describe it and Ross just goes, is that it? <laughs> I'm a dungeoneer. I'm supposed to be taking my life in my own hands. Why can't you make it an exciting experience for me? Oh, brace yourself for a crash, Ross. The end of the tunnel's coming up and the cart just won't slow down. Where am I? Ross, you are in a room. There are two doors ahead of you and there are roots here and there. There are also some bones on the floor. Well done, you lot. Ross is more or less safely into level three, which is further than most people get. Now, before you continue, I ought to tell you what little we know about this level. Cavern whites can be found here, as well as goblins and even hobgoblins. It's also haunted, and although some of the hauntings are harmless, others are not. Well, that's about all I can tell you, except as usual, don't linger about. It gives unpleasant things time to foregather. We've got another glimpse of level three, which is yes. always nice because it means you get to see some of the other architecture that's uh, often deprived to you. It's the skeleton room. I still wish they'd left it looking a little bit darker. Um, the yellow thing still gives the impression that it's bathed in sunshine, which is completely wrong for level three. But it still looks pretty gloomy. It's haunted today. Um, at this point, I think um, Tim Schultz had really started to realise the potential of haunting. Fake that's warning here. Is it the same warning every time? It's not verbatim, um, but the same general thrust of it is, is in the, is, is warnings here. The bottom line of what he's saying is, um, you thought it was tough so far. You ain't seen nothing yet. There's two skull hauntings in one room again. One mm. of them's grey. The other one is dark green. We're supposed to feel especially scared of green or blue ones because they apparently are more dangerous. But if they successfully consume life force so they change colour and become less dangerous, I, I don't know. The, the more coloured they are, the more hungry they are. I'm not completely sure. But basically, if it's a green one or a blue one, or in this case, a grey one as well, they're probably more dangerous than the white ones. Green ones just remind me of the pukas, and I'm not a fan of the pukas. The hauntings chase for us and cause a small amount of panic amongst the team before they successfully guide him onwards. They used the left exit! They use the left exit. And that will probably explain why they wound up in a very difficult cavern to escape next. We'll have some comments on their use of the left exit later on. Something I've, I've always wondered about, would they have had a safer second chamber if they'd gone through the right exit? Where am I? Ross, you're in a, in a room. Um, there's a tiny pathway in front of you, but um, and there's a face in front of you as well. 
and it's, it's a drop on the side. <laughs> what a ridiculous way to travel. Tell me, do you always walk everywhere like that? Take care, this uh, lady is not a friend. Silence, warder. It's a chamber that seems designed to have a character of sorts. Definitely. Um, it's called Morgana's Causeway because the only time it's used, Morgana is the character who appears in gigantic disability head form. This is actually her um, first appearance and we're running halfway through the series. So I don't know how uh, Natasha Pope feels about um, not getting to play the really powerful figure. She definitely got a lot of um, characters with attitude, didn't she? She certainly didn't have to play a, a sort of a Gretel or Melisandre type character in Nightmare. She plays Velda, who can be a goodie, but is uh, generally neutral. Yeah, but she's a badass. She beats up a troll. You bet she, you yeah. bet she's a badass. Um, and then she also plays um, a rather bad-tempered wall monster in the shape of Brangwen. And she also yeah. played um, the most famous sorceress um, in the history of sorceress fiction in the shape of Morgana Le Fay. Mm. Uh, well, we're assuming it's Morgana Le Fay. There's a slightly odd way it's spelt. It may just be a way of getting around um, any possible uh, legal issues. I do think that the author of the uh, ancient Welsh legends is probably out of copyright now, though. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so, but it might be held by an estate. But they get away with Merlin. Merlin um, wasn't uh, in the, the Welsh legends, um, or at least the name wasn't. The Welsh legend actually was called Mirathin, M-Y-R-D-D-I-N. It's a rather amusing story. I don't know if I told you it before. Do you know why um, Geoffrey of Mum have changed it from Mirathin to Merlin? Easier to pronounce. When he anglicised most names, what the obvious thing to do would be to call it Merdin. So you, you get rid of uh, Mirathin and he turned it, it's actually, he Latinized it, he read it Latin first. Mm. And so the obvious thing to call it, therefore, would be to call it Merdinus. Do you know what the problem is with calling him Merdinus? Well, I'm guessing it's because back then, England probably was known as um, Gaul and spoke we spoke French. No. Is it not? Nothing to do with that, no. England was never part of Gaul. Gaul is, um, was France and Western Germany. Yeah, but did, did we not speak French, though, back in back those days? Not really, no. The Normans and the Angevin kings spoke French, um, but they the, 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 the old English people just spoke English. I assumed it was because it's close to the French word mer. Yes, you got it. That is actually the real reason. In Latin, merdinus literally and exactly translates as sh- So that is why Geoffrey of Monmouth decided to change letter D. And you decided that the letter L sounded better in that position. They get to the throne room. Oh, there's sh- on this throne. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, we're so mature. Uh, anyway, yeah, Molkana. Basically, this is what, there's something that um, happens in both seasons. Is there's an alternative big bad uh, who sort of might be Mogdred's ally or his apprentice or some such thing. This season, it's Morgana, although why she would be subordinate to anybody is, is anyone's guess. In season four, it's a character called Malice. Both of them wear exactly the same costume, which suggests that there's some kind of link between them. In a later episode, Merlin states that Morgana has moved from the old realm and entered the dungeon via are the deeper catacombs and that's it that's all we ever really find out about how she's got here even whether she is the morgana actually of arthurian legend is not made completely clear the sorcerer's isle one of the books features morgana but doesn't spell her name that way uh, so whether it's the same morgana we don't know she doesn't seem to have an agenda as such uh, like mogdred does mogdred is all about trying to convert dungeoneers to his cause Morgana is just... She just wants to kill him. Yeah, she's like a child with 
no morality. You can almost see a um, source of resemblance to Elizabeth I as played in Blackadder. Not, not quite as weird as the way Miranda Richardson would play Elizabeth I. It's not really fair to judge because in the end, she only appeared in, in a couple of scenes. And so we never really saw any room for development or analysis of her. What we did, of course, is um, you were part of it. We ended up created an audio play for the Dunton players and explaining a lot of the changes between seasons three and four and five, including why Morgana disappeared and uh, why Malice replaced her. But anyway, that's when five tribes go to war. I'm sure a lot of you have already listened to it during our break weeks. You, I think it's about time you got wise to the ways of real magic, the kind that is born on the dark side. In the meantime, though, let's just let you squirm. <laughs> Warning, a danger to life force present. And I've thought about this, and I'm not going to put a Star Wars joke in there. It's too obvious. Okay, I, I was going to recommend you do um the line from Return of the Jedi when um, Vader says... You can't hide forever, Luke. Give yourself to the dark side. Okay, okay, obviously you're not going to do that. As Morgana vanishes, a battle axe manifests. It starts moving slowly towards Ross as the team discuss where to go, even though there's clearly only one path available to them. What were they thinking here, exactly? The team stand around whilst this battle axe is coming towards them, and they're discussing where to go. There's clearly only one path. The only other exit is way off. In the background, with no way to get to it. It's a ledge um, with a door behind it, yeah. I've often wondered what things they were actually had in mind for this room, but they may have decided to abandon it because they realised it was just too difficult to get across it, or mm. it was unreasonably difficult to get across it. It's possible that one of the things was that they might have had in mind was the gap on one side could possibly be filled up in, in, in a similar way to... Um, Lilith's causeway but at the same time you look at that thing in the background and you're thinking I don't really see how they could create a way of making that door accessible the, the scaling would be all wrong so what exactly that door's doing there I don't know maybe they could have had um, Melisandre standing on it waving saying I'm over here Ross come and rescue me eventually they begin guiding Ross carefully along the narrow path as the battle axe appears to come to a brief stop on the left of the chamber when the team take a moment to readjust Ross's footing, it gives chase again. The team appear calm, but when the axe gets closer, the tension begins to get to them. It's this tension that causes them to misstep, sending Ross off the pathway and into the chasm below. Um, turn Dugmay to your right. Quickly, walk Qu- forward. Quickly, Ross. Stop. That's the trouble with level three, team. Every step spells danger. And there you let Ross take just one step too many. They're actually so close to the door when this happens, you feel really sorry for them. The problem is the stone in front of the door is actually narrower than the stone of the pathway itself, and they didn't quite notice that. They had to get right onto the very, very left side of the pathway in order to be able to step cleanly onto it. Um, So they need to do a tiny, tiny sidestep left. It had to be tiny because otherwise they go off the side of the path. Um, And then another tiny sidestep left, then step forward 
onto the stone just just in front of the exit. They still had this kind of wily e. coyote thing just before they fall, though, don't they? Where he's just hovering in the air for a moment, actually turning to stone, suggesting hmm. the Medusa was somewhere nearby, but probably not. But that is the second furthest quest of the series so far. Ross's team. Ross's team have done the second furthest quest so far in season three. They did have a much shorter level two than anyone else. Well, than some others. Does Morgana score the kill here or doesn't she? She gets the win, but not the kill. What I mean by that is that um, in later seasons when Lord Fear's around, they'd actually keep score of um, how many quests the Dungeoneers have won and how many quests have been terminated. And um, every time a quest is terminated, Lord Fearside gets the scores one. And every time a quest object is uh, is claimed, side gets one. Isn't there an argument that says that her spell caused them to become flustered and walk off the edge? Well, yeah, it, pl- it played a role, but it didn't actually touch them. So, so it, it isn't the thing that killed them. So we'd love to know what you all think. Uh, if it was Morgana's kill or if it was the team just blundering. So either tweet us or leave a comment letting us know your opinion on the matter. Team, the dungeon salutes you for your quest was a long and perilous one and you only faltered towards the very end. Take me down to the path by the cliffs Give a dike and my scroll and my chin gap dismissed Oh, won't you please take me home so it's an interesting quest, at least. Well, it has to be, if only because it got so far. So you get, you get an awful lot of rooms. I have to say they overachieved enormously, even though they did improve. They did start looking quite promising level two. Um, but they were never better than patchy. Um, and their level one display overall was extremely weak. Um, mm. Far better teams than this never got as far as late level two, let alone into level three. So it's, it's a bit weird that they got into level three. That they, they did. That they they were one of the ended up with one of the furthest quests in the all season three. But at the same time, there are signs of potential in there. Some of that later stuff towards the end of um, towards the end of level two was actually extremely good. A bit dull voiced at times, but when they got their act together, they could be quite entertaining as well. They're not a total write off. Um, you, you can't write off anybody who gets level three. I still don't think they're as bad as you seem to think they are. They have their moments, I admit. I think they have more moments of showing initiative than they do not. Ross isn't the greatest dungeoneer. Uh, he is overly reliant on being told what to do. I do think as a team, they, they're prone to brain freezes um, at mm. very strange times. They can figure out something slightly awkward um, and then they see a big sign um, right in front of them saying, walk this way and that there's nothing nothing dangerous here and they're saying where do we think we should go now i wouldn't mind the brain freezes so much except sometimes they're over things that are really 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 obvious the egg not having an effect when they're holding it up well what do you do then try throwing it no no i'll wait until trey god tells me to do that can you push me please uh mcgrew that is at least partly due to mcgrew being pedantic it is yeah but it is still pretty pretty stupidly worded they did, in the end, get to level three, even if it was feels like a bit of a fluke that they got there. You must be doing something right at Nightmare if you get to level three, but I just don't think they really merited it. Farewell, for now others must inherit the challenge. Enter, stranger. Or perhaps I should have said miss. No matter, your name please and where you journey from. Kelly Pete from C. Pauling. Well, you can't journey alone, Kelly. Your advisors, please, call them now. Emma, Sarah, Tammy. 
The next Dungeoneer is a young lady by the name of Kelly Pete. She is guided by Emma, Sarah and Tammy and they all come from Sea Pauling in Norfolk. Off the bat, Kelly seems like a nervous Dungeoneer. This usually doesn't bode well, but we'll see. Traegard says that he will refrain from making jokes about female warriors, of which we're rather glad because we've already had enough <laughs> trouble with McGrew this episode. Yes. <laughs> he does say, though, that after seeing Velda dealing with the behemoth... <laughs> <laughs> his motivations for avoiding rampant sexism are not the best ones but whatever they are thank goodness he has them he wishes them well gives kelly the knapsack and the helmet and boots her through the door almost no discussion of actually what's ahead of her it shows that the series has finally gained enough confidence in its audience not to keep hitting them over the head of the rules now unless you want to back out and go home it's time to meet the dungeon ready round you go then face the door and take a big Bold, brave step forward. Where am I? You're in a room. There is no doors visible, but there's a kind of like a box with three sides with a dice in it in the middle of the room. Ah, who said dungeoneering was all brawn and broadswords? Here there be fun and games as well. Would you care to play, Kelly? Welcome to the dungeon. This is season three. Everything is still the same. Our talking is mundane. We try to make it seem random. Our dice is on the exact same number. We'd better play the game. We'd better play and never talk about it. So welcome to the dungeon. Unfortunately, yet again, it's the dice room. Why not use something else? This is boring. I hate the dice room. I never used to actually hate it, but going through this experience of every episode for the podcast, I am really beginning to detest it. It is such a massive step backwards um, from the uh, from the wheel of fate. Mm. And uh, I really wish we could that, that it doesn't even have to bring back the Wheel of Fate. Just do something different. And I know we will say that we're not going to talk about the dice room, but the hesitance by this team to react to the simplest and most obvious task, it does not bode well for them, does it? It does not. Mm. It does make you wonder if like all the teams are just that hesitant and they just kept it in a little bit for this one because they had a few more seconds to fill the episode with. Might be. It's possible. But watching the next episode, I get the feeling that they haven't done anything of the sort. It's, it's just the way they are interesting thing um the episode started with the first chamber of level two and it now ends with the first chamber of level one oh no no it really can't do that not just as we're getting started oh dear it has sorry but that's the way with temporal disruption all disruption and bad timing well, you'll just have to be patient and wait to find out where Kelly's going to take you next. Still, look on the bright side. At least you've got a week of normal activity ahead. Just think of this lot. This is actually a better episode than um, a lot of the recent ones. Um, it certainly moved a lot fast with Ross's team finding some kind of rhythm after a pretty awful level one. And uh, some quite interesting situations. As, as I said, I rather like the sword duel between Magoo... Magoo? Magoo? <laughs> <laughs> 
This is bold. This is bold Magoo here to not be able to see you. <laughs> uh, and the sword duel uh, between McGrew and uh, the um, animated sword was actually very, I think, by the standards of the time, it was very well done. The scene with the raven was funny. There's some good stuff in here. Some better use being made of some of the less interesting chambers. The twist room, actually getting a twist. It's an improvement, I think, on recent episodes. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more fast pace and any episode where we get the minecart ride is uh, got that going for it it can't be all wrong we get at least one new chamber which is always good and we get introduced to a new big bad do we count seeing her uh, disembodied head as seeing her in person I, I don't know she's in costume let's put it that way before we do the admin and say goodbye here's our youth correspondent feather menace with her thoughts on the episode hello this is Feather menace back for episode eight Traegard says it's cold in the dungeon and no wonder it's cold there because there's only one little fire to heat the whole dungeon. The raven asks, who's a stupid boy? And we can't say who I think it is on the Nightmare podcast, but he is a sausage roll. I love the amount of you're in a room in this episode. Merlin is one of my favourite characters. He likes to help the Dungeoneer and I think it's funny when he's so forgetful too. Now we're in the Hall of Spears. It's definitely a hall because it's too short to be a corridor. Sorry corridor fans! Now we meet the goblins in this corridor. Because it's longer than the hall. <laughs> oh, the bat's poisonous. Oh, I'm gonna, I don't know, pet the bat. 15 minutes later, I'm dead. <laughs> They're venomous. That made me mad. Morgana reminds me of Hella so much that I thought it was her for a second. But why did the team choose the left door when you're supposed to go right if you can? I'm going to credit this team's death to their own mistake. She sent the axe, but they made a mistake and fell, so she didn't kill them directly. They could have easily won there. They had the chance to go right, they didn't. It's impressive that they got to level 3 and they could have got much further. They could have even won if they have chosen the right door. This was a great episode, I gave it a 9 out of 10, but I'm going to make it a 5 out of 10, because they said poisonous when they meant venomous. Now have a lovely day, goodbye. There is a lot of you're in a room in this episode, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's no attempt by the team to change it up at all, is there? There's a lot of rooms which aren't actually rooms, so they could easily have done it. And it is definitely a hall of spears. Corridor <laughs> of spears. As we have stated, Feather Menace agrees. Why did they use the left door when they should have gone right? A lot of fans miss that when saying, oh my god, wasn't that ledge chamber incredibly unfair? Maybe that was the price of taking the left-hand door out of the skull cavern. I don't think it was even that unfair. I don't think it was that unfair. I think it was I think it was tough, but I don't think it was unfair. Mm. But some people think it was. I say to that, they shouldn't have used the left-hand door in the previous chamber. They should have used the right-hand door. Okay, cool. And uh, just the admin left to do now, I guess. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at night 
Nightmare Pod. If you want to support the podcast, the Nightmare Pod on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, here's a shout out to Keepers of the Book of Quest, Peter Posford and David N. Rabbit. Advisors, Benjamin Bloom. Peter Sidon and Dave Thompson and Dungeoneer Peter Courage support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned in the podcast higher level perks also receive merchandise have access to exclusive episodes and if you pledge us to keep the book of quests we'll even offer you the chance to be a guest on the podcast our website is nightmarepod.co.uk if you're looking for temporal discussion merchandise including t-shirts stickers and other products it's at nightmarepod.redbubble.com you can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk and just keep telling yourself it's only a podcast isn't it